you want to ditch feature dumping, build trust and earn the opportunity to become your prospect's trusted guide, then say hello to the Influential Communicator newsletter. Now, listen, my friend, my intention is clear because with one actionable weekly email keyword actionable my goal is to transform you into a captivating storyteller communicator and presenter so if this is a bit of you then head on down to www.theinfluentialcommunicator.com to register now and by the way if you do sign up know that you'll also receive my free guide on how to craft a punchy and high converting elevator story i'll see you on the other side Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. Hey, what's happening, people? Now, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to take the time to actually introduce our guest. Now, if you are a listener of the show and a longtime listener of the show, you'll know that I've never not introduced somebody's story before we kick off. But Ashton Williams, who's my guest for today, and I were just hanging out in the green room and the conversation was so good. I was like, listen, I just need to hit record. So we got straight into it. So I wanted to take the time just to tell you a little bit about today. Today's guest. And as I said, her name is Ashton Williams, and she's the director of strategic programs over at Slack. But the cool thing about Ashton is she's got a real obsession, a healthy obsession, and passion for sales leadership and mentorship in the form of coaching and training. And her mission is all about equipping her team and the wider sales community with the skills, knowledge, and toolkit they really need to succeed as a human being as a professional and as a salesperson in today's world where we're constantly on, in today's world where we're constantly being required to do more and in today's world where the pressures of being perfect is more so than ever before. And as you and I know, perfection doesn't exist, right? So this is a beautifully imperfect conversation between myself and Ashton. All right, I hope you enjoy it. Ashton Williams. What's good, my friend? What's good? Hello. Everything is good right now. Thanks for having me. Well, of course it's good because you're not crispy and you are, <laughs> you've just come back from Barbados. Now, for those of you thinking I'm being rude or I don't know, it's a private, it's a private joke. All right? That's what I'm trying to say. So Ashton, tell us, because I've never heard this before. Tell us your definition of crispy. Uh, I attribute this to a few friends who actually gave it to me, so I won't steal. But basically, on your way to burnout, you can be kind of well done in the oven <laughs> or like crispy. And crispy's like, we're getting close. It's time for a vacation. It's time for a break. You know, I'm not spending enough time on me. And most people will know this feeling when like you get to end of quarter and you're like, I'm crispy, but I got to get through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was, we were, for those of you, this is not just an inside joke. We were talking about, you know, what I learned on that trip. And I was like, I was crispy. And I came back like, you know, I'm dough again. I'm ready to be mm. baked. I'm good. <laughs> nice and malleable. Nice and malleable. I was just saying yeah. to Ashton before, I was like, I'm so annoyed that I didn't press record when Ashton came in the room because we had this amazing conversation for four minutes about self-worth, identity, and career. And I'm like, damn, I wish... 
people were hearing this. So I didn't really give her much of a time to prep before I press record. I was like, Ashton, I'm just pressing record. But hey, here we are. Here we are, my friend. But you know what's interesting about your story? And I don't know if many people know this, but in 2006, you actually studied fine arts, art history, and visual art at York University. And what I'd love to know is, is what's one thing that you took from that world that you still use today and have transferred it over into sales? So many things I would take. If I, I don't know if I could say just one, but I'd probably say two because I have a hard time choosing. Okay. One would be when you learn about art history, you learn art as a mechanism for storytelling and signaling the word of the people in those times, how something is depicted, the size of a character, the colors they choose, why they choose this scene. It always has a hidden message that's very political. And I think understanding that there's more than just what you see up front and telling a story in a language that you know everyone understands is very much something I take forward. And the second is things aren't always as they seem. So I think about this in business where People are people. We're human. Business isn't personal, but humans, we're doing this together. And so there's a lot of times where a calm could be read wrong. A slide doesn't resonate. Somebody feels called out and actually that person wasn't thinking about that. And you think about how art gets interpreted, you know, by the the viewer isn't necessarily how the artist intended it, but doesn't matter. In art, we're trying to get a reaction. We're trying to make people feel, which is like a concept called affect. How do we affect people with the work? And it doesn't matter what the reaction is. If they feel something when they see it, you've accomplished what you need to do as an artist because you're trying to get people to see and feel. In business, we kind of want that, but we want them to see and feel what we want. (laughs) And that's different, but the same in some ways. It's really interesting you say... We're all human beings in this together. And I'm paraphrasing, but you said something along those lines. I don't know about you, but sometimes when when I'm in my car and I'm about to experience road rage or whatever might occur, right? Somebody does something to derail you in the day. I always have to remind myself, I'm like, hold on, this person has a story. This person has a story about something that they've gone through that day in their life that I'm not aware of. And I'm curious to know for you. What's been your go-to approach for, in the workplace, diffusing conflict and trying to understand somebody's story and perspective? Ooh, I love this question. So I'm going to reference a few greats because I think Mel Robbins has a let them theory. Trevor Noah talks about how, you know, if somebody doesn't know you, they're not trying to hurt you. Like, don't personalize that. You know, they they don't know you. They don't care. But if somebody knows you, you know, they can partake in like, hey, you've hurt me and we want to work through this. I think in workplaces, it's, it's a little bit confusing because people feel maybe that somebody knows them and that person doesn't. Maybe you work together once on a project. Maybe they see your face, but they don't know you. So the intention to come at you is probably inflated. Not to say it never happens. Like, of course, we have politics where people, businesses run at different calibers. But for the most part, I go, you know, if you're in service of the greater goal, then it shouldn't be conflict. If we're not on the same page about what we're trying to do, then that's going to have weird levels of interpretation. And we need to cut that really quickly, especially in enablement, what I do. We bring teams together with different goals, different viewpoints, you know, different experience levels. And we go, we have to do one thing together. And everyone views that one thing very differently. So making sure everybody's on the same page is really key. But there's also, you know, 
yes, we want to do good work, but I think there's a part of work that, and I actually appreciate that I had a business that had like social workers on staff in corporate because they were like, there's things that are business and there's things that like you need to work through. And like, we don't want your manager doing that. But there's some things where like, if you have a tendency as a person to personalize things, you're going to be really unregulated in situations where you feel unsafe. And at work, when that's our livelihood, when we're not sure if we're doing well, when the rules are changing and there's all this happening, feeling unsafe is normal, but it doesn't mean it's the businesses or your team's problem. Like you, you need to sort that out and be able to communicate what you need. And that goes beyond work life. That's relationships because most things you do require relationships. So my kind of viewpoint on that is what's in it for that person? And what's it like, am I just here feeling crispy, right? And personalizing something. And if I were on the other end of this and we're trying to achieve a business goal, like I need to reset, like, what are we trying to do? Right. If what someone did unintentionally hurt me or, you know, made me look bad, of course, I'm going to have a conversation and say, Hey, I don't think this was your intention, but this is how this landed with me. I just want to make sure we're cool. I just want to like, I think we're cool because I gave you positive regard. And I think when we don't assume people have good intentions, we make stories in our head that are ridiculous. We're not the center of anybody else's world. <laughs> I love everything you've said. And I think that's sound advice for not just business, but life. But I'll tell you what I love more is your blazer. It, <laughs> I, that is so dope. I keep thinking, how am I going to get me one of those? That looks so dope. Do you wear that on stage whenever you speak or when you're doing panel events and stuff? You know, it's funny. I bought this. I did a session at work on branding on how okay. to like navigate your personal brand internally in a company. And I wore, I bought this blazer because Barbie as a movie, like the branding genius of this movie, really? you cannot see pink and not think of this movie. They've like, they've just commanded the color. It's no longer neutral. It is a like power color. And you think of the movie to get that level of association is very real. So I bought it for that. And then I was like, I, I just love this. So I wear it all the time. I love it. I love it. And also you're a very intentional thinker, aren't you? Like you, you really like digging deep below the surface because what you just said there connects to your degree and what you learned there and the association behind colors and how it affects people, etc. So that's very interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. So riddle me this, my friend, in a LinkedIn post about, oof, I think it was about 11 months ago. There was a really unfortunate incident where a lot of people got unfortunately laid off at Salesforce, but you wrote a post about it, offering your condolences and support. And you said this in your post, and I found it fascinating. You said, your value isn't determined by where you work and your title is not your identity. I had to unlearn this many times and you went on. And I know this touches upon what we were talking about in the green room if we must call it that. But talk to that for a second, because, you know, coming from somebody who is a work in progress with regards to not being defined their career, et cetera, I found things that helped me and have helped me, but I always like to hear somebody else's perspective. So talk to that for a sec. Yeah, this one resonates because it took me a long time to unlearn it. And honestly, every time I get a new job, I have to unlearn it again, right? It, it's not a linear path or you're fixed it is a practice. And so I think I wasn't always intentional. I was young and like intentional in like flimsy ways, you know, like I want to be rich. I want to be free. I want to do these things, but like no real plan or, you know, just like showing up. I mean, like, I guess I'll get there. And that was a really chaotic way to live. Like I was burnt out in my twenties, which is not 
normal. I'll give an example of like just my my extremity so people understand what a real journey this was. When I went to art school, I paid for art school myself and I worked in retail and got promoted very quickly in retail. So I was a manager while working like full while doing school full time. So that's like a 45 hour week plus 40 hours of school. They were not close together or on campus. They were an hour apart. And in order to do both of those things well, and I didn't always get it right, I used to open my store early and invite my book of business that I'd figured out of key clients once a quarter, pull racks for them, and literally sell my full week's budget in those morning sales, and then hightail it to class and make it back to close the store. And I gave my team like a ton of training so they could run you know, sometimes without me because I, I couldn't always be there as an assistant manager at the time. And needless to say... I was balling in university, which was great, but I was tired and couldn't go anywhere. (laughs) And that's just not a a sustainable way, right, to live. So I took a year off between getting into tech and my previous world. And in that, that year off, if I abbreviate it for everyone here, I had to reconnect with not having a job, meeting new people. I remember I was dating and people would be like, what do you do? And I would freak out. It would be like so stressful because I'd be like, I don't have value in this conversation. Or go to a networking event and have to say you're unemployed. Like, it was the worst. And I was like, why is this worse? Why is this what people ask about? Why isn't someone asking about what's the coolest thing you did? Where's a trip? What's a lesson you've learned? Like, that's the valuable conversation. It took me so long to be comfortable in that. And I was spending time with my friends. I was being there for the people I cared about. I had time to really invest in what fills my cup, which is my relationships and my people and my community. And I was like, whoa, I was doing none of this. And I was just like riding on this hollow thing of like, I work somewhere I love and I have a title I'm proud of. And so when I made the move to tech, I was quite intentional about it where I was like, I want work to be a vehicle for this freedom that I'm feeling and to be there for the people that matter to me. And so that break was so pivotal and so important, but it also reminded me that like, that business isn't holding value for me. They're not like when I'm gone, they're not like, ooh, Ashton worked here. Like we don't have this mutual relationship. It's a transaction that, you know, it, you do in good faith. We all buy things, but it's me who has to live with me and I can't rely on a business to hold me up. And so I had to really work at how you hold yourself up and knowing your values, being intentional about what you want and doing things that fill your cup and understanding how work fuels, like what does it give you? And what can't it give you? And I think I had to really reckon with that in that time off. I think so many people are going to resonate with exactly what you've said. And I find it funny. You know, I, this year, started boxing. I hired a boxing trainer. It was something I wanted to do. So I hang around the boxing gym. And what people gain their value from in that environment is, oh, are you sparring? Oh, are you doing bag work? Oh, you know, like, do you go to the gym? Da, da, da what they will pull maybe some of their self-worth from will be health. So I think it's quite interesting where you surround yourself or who you surround yourself by and the environment can dictate what you end up valuing because the people around you value that thing. And so I totally get that. And by the way, for those of you that have just joined in, I've started this episode, unlike how I've started any other episode on this podcast because Ashton and I were kicking it and I was like, I just need to press record because this is too good. So, hey, here we are. We were meant to talk about how do you storytelling to motivate your people to take action. We may talk about it. We may not. I don't care because I just want to talk to Ashton (laughs) right now. Okay. So what I'm curious to know in that, okay, is your take on the following. I have a buddy. Let's call him Jimmy. 
Now, Jimmy often runs around like a headless chicken where, like you described, you would be at university, then you'd be in the store closing up, then you'd be training people. That constant busyness created this high that Jimmy is and often was addicted to. This concept of being busy, to actually run away secretly from what was deeply going on or is going on in this person's life. Have you ever used busyness as a tool to unintentionally mask what's actually going on to figure out your values, to figure out what you want and all that good stuff? I would say yes and no. Like I would have said I was more addicted to stress and chaos than busyness. Uh So being busy, I was a pretty high capacity young person. So busy, what busy looks like to me is like a little unnatural. Like I coached and played on three teams at a time while going to school an hour away. Like I just was always a packed schedule, a 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. kind of person. Hence, I burnt out in my 20s. No, no surprise. But busy wasn't the word. It would be, am I rescuing something? Am I in chaos and organizing it? And so when things would be too stable, I would be a little bit bored. Not that I wasn't busy. I was just like, meh everything's fine. Like there's nothing urgent here. So it was like urgency and stress that I used to really thrive on, which meant I also chose things that were chaotic and that kept me wrapped up. I worked at one company where, you know, we deal in travel and the business itself was great. I loved, you know, working there, but I was also part of their emergency response team and had to, you know, you deal with emergency stuff. Like we, we, my reps were, were doing emergency situations and, as a trainer there, I had to be aware of like a flight didn't land where it was supposed to. A group is turned around, you know, and the level of training you get, which is amazing. I also worked in customer success. So like de-escalation, I'm really, I go like numb in those situations, solve it. But what I didn't do was like, after we, you know, dealt with the situation, did I actually let those emotions process? And I see that in business. One of our executives at Salesforce actually had a great talk, Amy Weaver. She's brilliant. If you ever hear her speak, she's incredible. But she said, you know, being an executive means something can happen. You can have feelings, but you have to be able to take the most important next step. You can't let it stop you from moving forward. You're responsible for driving the next step. So you can't freeze, right? And it doesn't mean that what's happening is invalid or you're not going to feel away. You're not going to you know, process that. But you got to still be able to move what you got to move forward. And that is like a trust thing. And so I think so much about that in business where I'm like, I'm trained to de-escalate. That is my like earliest memory of training is de-escalating big things in both customer success and travel and other in other ways. And tech can be quite urgent. We're very like urgent people. <laughs> and being able to say, I'm going to take that next step is one thing, but also, you know, did I stop to process what just happened? And when I didn't do that piece, which I would be busy instead, I'd keep going to the next thing that would build up and then I'd freeze or feel stuck or not be able to move forward or, you know, get crispy as we talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The crispy, that word cracks me up still. But the, the thing that I'm taking away, well, I suppose the thing that stood out for me the most was one of the first things you said around your addiction to stress and chaos. So what story do you think you told yourself about the link between stress and success back then? That all good work is hard work. That if you aren't feeling yourself being pushed, you're not growing. If it's not urgent, it's not important. And 
yes, you should feel some level of growth and there is pain in growth, but some growth isn't, you know, brutally painful. You can sleep at night and still be growing, but it's like my level of belief that if it wasn't all consuming, if I wasn't, you know, constantly being like, I got to be in at nine and I got to be home at nine. And like, there's just stuff going on. And like, you wouldn't understand. It's a very big, it's almost like self-importance. You know, I felt like because I was doing stressful things, therefore my work was more important. Therefore I was more important in my identity now tied to this work. Mm, That's really fascinating. And the rewiring of that internal narrative do you still feel that, oh, well, how long did that rewiring take? And do you often feel that old narrative pop up now and again still? I think now in my career, I've reached a stage where I've like reclaimed that story and edited it in a better way that that makes sense for who I am. I am trained in high stakes situations. Emotional high stakes, I can handle. You will need to lay off your whole company and restructure. I got you. I'm going to be fine. You know, you need to make a pivotal change that's a high risk and a big deal and high responsibility. I'm going to be level through that. I'm not going to, you know, freak out. And that is an asset. However, it doesn't mean that everything I do needs to be high stakes, that everything I do needs to be all consuming, and that I can have moments of rest and I can have. Moments to go, oh, it worked. Let's take a minute. And so I, I see it more as like, it is a superpower, but I can't use it 24 hours a day. We can't stay in the chaos, right? My job is to get us to get in there, be calm, manage it. But just like I would need the moment to process it, so will all the people on the other side of that change, right? And change management becomes a pretty important part of enablement, training, even, you know, sellers are helping people change when they purchase something. So I've reclaimed that in, it's not a stress addiction like that I've dealt with. I don't, I don't need it to feel valuable. I could sit all day, do nothing and feel perfectly fine with myself now. I wish I could get there sooner, (laughs) but it's an asset that I can come into a high stress situation and help everybody regulate so that we can do what's most important and focus on what's in front of us. And, and with the promise that on the other side of this, we will be a little calmer and have some downtime, which is, you know, what everyone needs no matter what you do. Sales kickoff season is coming, people, and I love it, man. I love it because it's such an exciting time as a speaker. But for enablement professionals and revenue leaders, well, it can be kind of stressful, you know, and having delivered storytelling keynotes and workshops for revenue teams like NetSuite, Crunchbase and AB Tasty. I know it's not just about motivation and inspiration, but also about finding the right speaker who can educate your audience and spark a long lasting shift in behavior. So, hey, if you are thinking about storytelling as a theme for kicking off your new fiscal year, then head on down to www.theraviRajani.com forward slash speaking to check out my speaker reel, take a look at some of my topics and some customer stories to see if there's a fit. And if there is, then you can scroll down to the bottom and book an alignment call with me directly. All right, let's get back to the show. I love how it sounds as though you're using chaos and stress, like you've acknowledged it, that it can contribute to your superpower. And now you're using it as a tool to make you shine 
in high stakes scenarios versus it being the fuel for your daily activities. It's like this, this beautiful switch, which is really dope. And I think a lot of people will learn from that. And I think on that topic of storytelling and rewiring the stories that we tell ourselves, let's take a look at stories that we tell others. So let's actually get to the topic, right? So what I really wanted to talk to you about but before we, before we pressed go and as we were nailing down this topic was really how can a leader use storytelling to inspire others and their people to take action? And you said to me, Rav, I got you. I got this thing, okay? Trust, transparency, lead. And I was like, oh, okay, the TTL method. I like it. I like it. I like it. So before we get into that, what I'd love to know from you is your take on this. We talk so much in all the work that I do with revenue leaders. Mm-hmm. The number one thing that they'll say is we need our people to stop feature selling. We need our people to stop feature selling. Storytelling mm-hmm. is what we want you know, them to do. How do we do that? Da, 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 da. But what's fascinating is people often look at feature selling, in my opinion, as something that we just do in customer conversations. But I find it funny because internally, when we're trying to present a new idea, we'll look at the features of the idea. We won't connect to the why or the story. So when it comes to feature selling, do you see that in like leaders when they portray or rather showcase their vision and what they want people to do as well? Or am I barking mm-hmm. up the wrong tree? No, no. So I actually, it's funny. I don't think I've worked at a company that hasn't given me this problem to solve of like, we focus on the features. We need to be focused on the vision and why and storytelling. And I always ask, you know, when people fall to feature, it's usually because the confidence and the vision, the story and the bigger picture as the most important thing is low. It's not that people don't know it or that they think the features are the most important thing. That's usually like an anxious thing. The best sellers who are feeling good, having an awesome day can redirect a client and be like, listen, yeah, yeah, of course it's going to do the thing it says it's going to do, but what are your goals? But that's a seller, you know, it's confident, a leader that's confident who can redirect those things and not be side railed. If you don't believe that the vision and the story are the most important thing, if you feel in that moment sidestepped or caught off guard, you're going to fall to what you know. And most people, because learning something as tactical as like technical knowledge or the features of an idea or the minutia, that's easy to learn, feel confident that I know because it's black and white. And the risk of it not resonating because it's a fact is so lower risk, right? The fact is that we have a feature that does this thing. You can feel however you want about that. There's no risk in me telling you. But for me to say, hey, this future world that I'm painting and I want to paint with you, we need to get on the same bus for, that requires risk on both parts. And we're not always comfortable with that risk. So we spend so much time saying, stop talking about features, talk about vision. But our, our customers want to talk about features. Our customers get into those meetings and ask about the features because they've been looking at our product online forever. So you have to really work with a rep from a place of like, hey, I'm going to prove to you that I'm not adding risk to your deal when you pull people to high level. It's not fluffy. It is not, you know, we're not talking about things. You're not going to get dismissed. And if you do, like you're to guide this person to go, Hey, your executives are going to want the story here. I know you want to buy it. We're going to figure out that it works for you. But like, when you go to present to your executives, are you really going to spend time talking about this? Cause I don't think so. My customers who are successful, we spend time on, 
tell me about your company's future vision and who you want to be and let us be the partner in getting you there. And yeah, we'll make time for this conversation on features, of course, but we got to start an anchor on what is it we're trying to achieve together. And great reps know to walk away from someone who's not willing to have that conversation with them. But when you're stressed and quotas tight, you're like, hey man, you want to buy a feature? Go ahead. I'm not going to say no to money, of course. But is that customer going to be one who easily adopts new things? Is that customer not going to be one who stresses you on like the roadmap and the next feature and the next thing and the like details of stuff that like just don't matter that much? And the customer who's not going to be able to communicate business results to the executives and make you sticky, that is not the partner you want in that business for your long-term success or for that business's long-term success. And so, you know, it's usually why the people who buy it and the people who implement it are different, right? They have to be focused in different areas as they should be, but everyone needs to be on the same page about that vision. And it helps you know, is that business actually aligned? So maybe you have one ambitious person trying to buy this. The CEO's story is like a whole other way. And are the CFO and CEO on the same page about how much they're investing in that story? The story helps you know who's on the bus. And I think we don't talk about the fact that like we are de-risking your future deal by having this conversation, as opposed to feeling like the risk is I'm going to get thrown out at stage one. If you get thrown out at stage one, don't worry about it. It wasn't a deal. It was a lead, an opportunity maybe, right? And so it's paying dividends to future you in the sales cycle. A similarly internally project, right? That -hmm. project will get cut. It will get under-resourced. If they don't know why we're doing it, trust me, those resources will get pulled for someone who told the better story. What I find fascinating is two things. Number one is you use the word anchor two or three times in the two times that we've connected. So I get the feeling that anchoring towards something bigger is always important to you. The second thing is how you said reps don't want to be feature selling, but they revert back to what they know and what might feel more comfortable than actually doing something different because they haven't been taught that. But if we actually were to look at this now from the perspective of Jimmy, the let's use our friend Jimmy again. So Jimmy's now a revenue leader, right? And he needs to inspire his team to rally around the new goals that the CRO has set. And he knows he may get some pushback and there's going to be some resistance and whatnot. But how does Jimmy, instead of talking about the features of the new goals and the vision, how can he share a story which inspires people and rallies them around that vision using some of the principles that you've mentioned from that customer facing example? The framework that we talked about, I think this is a great time to share it. So anyone can tell stories, right? We know this, but in order for people to hear you, and for it to resonate, you have to have a little bit of a formula. And I really believe, especially as leaders, trust is first. You have to earn the trust of your team to listen to you and hear you and follow you, but you also have to give trust very freely. You need to trust that people are adults who want to do their best work and are going to try their best, and you have to give them room to learn what their best is. And I think most leaders have one and not the other going on at the same time. Giving trust doesn't mean no guidance. It doesn't mean you never know what they're working on. It doesn't mean being absent, but it means I trust you to get this done, but I'm going to need you to communicate with me and I trust you to do that. And I trust the update you're going to give me, right? But I also am going to earn your trust by moving blockers for you, showing you I care about you and not just the business because we're managers. The next is transparency. You know, if you trust your team, you will be transparent with them. 
proactively communicate. Take the helm of things that are changing. Share insight, share context, share how your last executive call went. Trust people with the context they're going to need to get to the next level, to make better decisions, to be independent, to go and be trusted. And I think we forget proactive communication. We wait for an update. We're scrambling to understand it. Instead of going, hey, the sentiment in the business right now is this. You might see priorities shift. I don't know what's going to change, but I can tell you based on you know the meetings I'm in and the feeling of those meetings, here are some things you should be aware of. So a good one I do for my team is I go, hey guys, it's end of quarter. And here's our stats. So expect your managers to be a little higher stress. Expect your reps to be a little bit more nervous. Expect people to not have time for what's not important. So expect pushback, expect conflict. And your job is to be empathetic in this and go, I hear you. How can I help? That's a different move from like maybe in Q1 when I'm like, we need to get this done and expect pushback, but we're gonna, people got to learn and they're not going to like it, but they'll be happy in Q3 when they learn it. You know, the last is take the lead. So I think many leaders choose not to have a point of view. I think about this in money conversations. You know, we didn't have budget. The business told me I couldn't. Communicating big changes. You know, I wasn't part of this decision, but it's my job to tell you. I don't agree with this training that's happening, but you got to do it. It's a check the box. All of that, it does not breed trust. And nobody wants to report to a leader who looks powerless, right? So the stories that you tell mean you have to have a point of view on why we need to do this as a team how it's going to benefit us, why it's important to the business, how it's going to help our careers, how it's going to advance our goals. Like you need to stop and think about that stuff. You know, if someone, if I realize I don't have budget, right, to give someone a raise, that's this is like the hardest conversation leaders go through. That's not a good answer because realistically, a business will fight to retain their top talent. Budget is not a real answer, right? Unless nobody's getting promoted, that's different. But if someone is and someone isn't, we did make a choice on who got that and who didn't. And there are areas to grow. And you as a leader have to be honest and, and trust your team that, hey, I think you're wonderful. You're doing great at your job. You might not be being the best right now. And here are ways that you can get there so that next year it's you who we funnel the very limited space to. And I'll work with you on that, right? So I believe that as a leader, when you're communicating, you have to have your own point of view and feel strongly about why we're going there. And the story you're telling is one of, thank you for trusting me. I'm going to lead us to success. These are the things along the way that we got to get done. Are we all committed and on the bus? And we forget so much about who we're talking to and what matters to them. And the story that the business ultimately has told around why are we making this change or doing this thing? Because it's usually a good one usually, if you take the time to understand it and have your own point of view on it. What I find interesting about what you mentioned there was the piece about WIFM, what's in it for me? Because the truth is, is if a rep is now going to run through a brick wall for you, what's in it for them isn't necessarily more commission, but it could be the fact that they want to move and buy their dream home with their partner. That's like what's in it for them. Not, okay, more money is the byproduct of that, right? Which I think is fascinating. But I'm curious to know your take on this. One of the things that I see, Ashton, that revenue leaders, actually leaders and human beings, we often struggle with is the lack of vulnerability in the workplace 
doesn't humanize a leader. And if somebody's not humanized, then a rep sees them as like a robot or this authoritative figure who's like superwoman or superman and they cannot be hurt, etc. And it can often result in a, a superficial environment where trust on a deep level and connection doesn't exist. From your experience and how you've built trust with your team members, how have you used storytelling to showcase vulnerability while still being considered professional? And I say that quote unquote. Yeah. Brene Brown says vulnerability is not oversharing. It's not sharing like, you know, your deep, dark past and secrets. Like there's some of your business you need to keep to yourself. As a Caribbean, we do not share our business. So like, that's a very real rule. Like, I don't want to hear about personal things. I could not hear from you otherwise that you wouldn't put on blast. But there is a point to being vulnerable and being in it with your team, right? You need to sit with someone in what's happening. And that means you need to be honest about the fact that you're sitting with them. We often as leaders, especially frontline leaders, because they're in the middle, right? They've got an unsteady position to protect and a bunch of people to lead. It's from a place of confidence where you feel good about your role, stable, like your career's fine. You're going to do the right things for your team. But when you don't feel that stability, it's a conflict of interest of protecting yourself. And it doesn't allow you to really prioritize the team in the right way. So for my teams, you know, I'm pretty honest about what I'm not good at. I'm pretty honest about when I make a mistake. You know, a good example is I, I was going on vacation and I had overcommitted a bunch of stuff that I could do. It was my first vacation in a long time. I was already burnt out. I should have known that there was absolutely no way in the last week before vacation that I was going to have the energy to do the nine things I committed. And two of the things slipped my mind and I just left. And, you know, my team had to pick that up and that sucked. And someone gave me feedback on it. And I was like, you know, I broke trust by saying I was going to do something and not following through. And I've learned that I'm not great at admin and I got to get better at like my own personal organization of lists. But I understand how that must have felt shitty, right? Like I'm leaving on vacation. I've dropped work on you. You're already going to be short staffed while I'm out. And like, I'm sorry, that's not some, that's not the type of leader I want to be. And like, I hope you'll hold me accountable for that next time. But like, I'm going to acknowledge it. It was a miss, right? Or there's times where we've like said we're going to work on something and it gets really busy in the business and the business pivoted and I forgot to proactively communicate the pivot and that created chaos on the team, right? And I'm like, ooh, that's my bad. I should have told you and I understand. So let's look at the project and like what's reasonable. No one should be working 8 p.m. nights to get it done to save my face. I will go own that I didn't give my team the heads up and that we need a little more time, but that's not on you. Right. And I think when we take that accountability for what is ours to own as leaders and we don't ask our team to lead themselves, because I think a lot of leaders confuse trust with that, it builds the right relationship. Right. Like it is my job to prepare for your check in, too. It's not for you to come and tell me what you want. Like, yes, there is an element of that, but like, I'm still your leader. I still have a responsibility. It is my job to run our team meetings. Does it mean we're going to share that responsibility and I'm going to help people grow and stand? Of course. But is it my job to come with what the most important priorities are for the business and how we should be focused and be able to redirect it if it's bad? 150% always is my team. So I think there's an element of knowing your job and where your lane ends and where your team starts and owning that space so that they're not feeling 
ricochets around not knowing, you know, what's mine, what's yours. And like, when they feel like you should have done something or it's a manager's job and you didn't do it, they're not going to tell you. They're just going to not trust you and stop following you. I love the accountability, what you said. And the piece around what Brene Brown, I love her, by the way, just I love her stuff about really figuring out what vulnerability means to you. I think we're living in a world where People think, okay, in order to build trust with people, I need to share all of the skeletons in my closet. And the way I think about it personally is I prefer depth on what I'm willing to share, have processed and won't experience a vulnerability hangover from versus wit and just tell you everything about everything and just show up and throw up. I don't know. So I actually find that when I explain this to friends is like, it's so selfish to tell somebody things that they haven't agreed to hold because you're doing it for validation for yourself. You're not doing it to further the group. You're not doing it because it has a point. You're exposing yourself for hopes of acceptance. There are moments and times and types of relationships where that is incredibly important. You need to do that to fall in love. You need to do that to be in a healthy partnership. You need to do that with your children sometimes. In business, it's so, it feels so inappropriate, right? When someone is overshared, you just see the whole group. It's not that we don't feel for you, but like everyone's like, oh, and you don't get that acceptance you're looking for because you've shared this in the wrong context and for the wrong reasons. And I think most people don't stop to think, what am I hoping to gain from this? If the gain isn't purposeful, right? I shared, you know, something that was going on in my life because I knew I wasn't showing up to work the way I needed to. And my team needed to know that, Hey, like there's something going on, right? Like that's a moment where I'm like, it's because I need you to know so that you can maintain your business and stress. And I'm going to need your help in, you know, letting me know what's dire. Cause right now I'm at 50%. Like that's different than me being like, my day was hard and this was rough with my boss today and, and using my team to kind of hear me out. That's like weird. Nobody cares <laughs> that deeply, especially your employees who are like, I'm pretty sure you get paid more than me, like figure it out. <laughs> and I think people really don't have the self-awareness sometimes where they're so scared of vulnerability that they, instead of going to the vulnerable place that's hard, they go to the like, please accept me with all my faults place. And like, we ain't friends like that. This is work. You got to earn that level of friendship and ideally one-on-one. So I just think it's a, you know, that's where I say there's some things that are work, but most things are relationships. And that is someone going on their journey to like learn themselves better, connect better and show up in a space that is, you know, more authentic, but also healing for them and the people around them. Interesting perspective, interesting take on that. And I think one thing I took away from what you mentioned is the word context. You know, I used to work in the world of corporate sales, but in investment banking on the trading floor. And I remember I met this client and in a boardroom style room where it was my team, his team, vulnerability would only go so far. And then over drinks and dinner, boom, it would open up very, very differently because the context of vulnerability was different. And that allowed us to strengthen our relationship, which was beautiful. But if he had shared that, what he told me in the boardroom, it would have gone down awful because, mm. you know, it would have been like, oh, wrong, right story, wrong time. But hey, Ashton, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I think one thing 
if I had to take away from this conversation as a whole, is something a dude called Yaya Bakar once taught me, which was use your story. He said it once on a podcast and I heard it and I've never stopped, never stopped uh, embodying it, which is use your story to give others significance, not yourself significance, right? And that's what I took away from every little piece that we've mentioned today. So I appreciate you for that. Now, as you know, my friend, the show is called The Influential Communicator. What I'd love to know is who is somebody that you look up to as an influential communicator and why? What do they do differently? Esther Perel would have to be you know, my gold star there. And the reason is I'm bilingual. So I love that she can transcend language. When you don't speak the same language, you have to learn so many ways that people communicate because in different cultures, words mean different things. So you have to be understanding context, expression, norms. You have to kind of understand that culture a little bit better. And it forces you into this like very specific, deep understanding of communication. The woman speaks a million languages and manages to connect, to listen, to still provide an opinion. She's not like a silent therapist, right? Like she very much gives guidance, but the way that she's able to open people up, redirect them, help them refocus, make them feel heard, you know, ask for what resonates with them. She just is able to involve them in making the communication productive in a way that I think is quite unparalleled. Someone is talking about, you know, hard stuff and she will involve them in being accountable for making that interaction work. But she also does it with leadership and guidance and I just respect it because I'm sure those conversations impact her too. I'm sure she has feelings and emotions and sadness alongside those people. But in that moment, her responsibility, she acknowledges and maintains that. I'm sure she deals with herself later, right? But the way that she's able to communicate and inspire in these moments where people are at their hardest, at their most desperate, is probably something that always reminds me, you know, especially at work, like I'm not having a desperate conversation. I can figure out how to communicate. Like <laughs> this is, this is like table stakes, you know, but I, I really admire the way she's able to do that. All the names that you've mentioned today tells me that you are big on personal development, right? I, I all of the names that you spoke about, I'm like, yeah, 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 I feel you. I feel you. So I love that. I love that. Now, Esther's interesting. I've seen one interview with her and a dude called Matthew Hussey. But I haven't seen much of her, but I've heard incredible things about her work and yeah. how intentional she is. She focuses on relationships, right? Am I yes. wrong? Oh, no, no. Yeah, She's okay. a relationship counselor, but she also has done, she did a TED Talk. She's very progressive in just her ideas of like how humans make their decisions and why. But she has a podcast called Where Should We Begin? And it's where you listen to a counseling session. And I have found like hearing how she modifies her, her communication based on who's in front of her and what they're talking about every single time is a big learning for me. Also, I love hearing, you know, it, it helps you feel more connected when you hear other people going through things and the challenges and where they feel stuck. And maybe places you're not stuck, but it doesn't mean you forget that you were once there too, or, or you can feel why they might feel that way, even if you disagree. And she does it in a neutral way across like different political lines, different beliefs. Like she manages to have these conversations with people on wide spectrum. And so I'm a fan of her work, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of her mechanism for connecting with people via communication. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised the idea of listening to those sort of 
live raw podcast can make you feel really connected with people so i'm not surprised you just said what you said so that's dope that's dope well listen my friend it was great having you and tell me this i know you you're working on a lot of different things right now personally and professionally but what is one thing you'd love to shine a light on which people can learn more about i think right now i'm thinking about how do i have these intentional conversations with people who are also growing their careers And so I'm working out how to spend more intentional time helping folks, mentorship, coaching. And you will see me doing speaking events to share what I'm learning. I'd say more to come very soon, but not ready to announce. So right now I'm going to be taking the stage in Toronto and joining the Sales Enablement Collective's Summit and more to come. Okay, nice one. Well, listen, whenever that's released, we'll put it in the show notes, Ashton. But ladies and gents, if you want to learn more about Ashton, I can almost guarantee the best place rather to go to is LinkedIn. So we'll put a handle inside of the show notes. But hey, I appreciate you for listening to this episode, Peeps. If you've enjoyed it, then you know what you need to do, man. You need to take a screenshot of where you're listening to this. You need to tag myself and Ashton on LinkedIn and tell us what you found the most impactful out of today's show. And I'll see you very soon for another episode of The Influential Communicator. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Because I tell you what, my friend, my big mission is to help B2B sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value. So hey, The more the word gets out about this podcast, the more people we can gather on this mission. So if you could support me, then hey, that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right, I'll see you on the other side.